0: This is IVP. I am so excited to talk to International Tennis Hall of Famer Michael Chang, whose 1989 French Open win at age 17 made him the youngest man in the history of tennis to win a Grand Slam singles title. Also a US Open finalist in 1996, Michael achieved a career high number two ranking while winning 34 career singles crowns. He is the subject of a new upcoming ESPN 3430 30 documentary called American Sun. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Michael, um, I just read your beautiful 2021 essay entitled. Let's Come Together to End the Hate. This was published on the U.S. Tennis Association, USTA website. And you talked about experiencing anti-Asian hate firsthand. Would you share what happened?
1: Yeah, I've I've been asked questions about, have I experienced that playing on tour and playing all around the world? And and it's interesting because I have to say that I've actually experienced very little racism actually on the tennis tour. And I think part of that part of that reason is because the the ATP tour is so is so international. We play, you know, all different countries, all different continents, and everyone's coming from a different background. So it's it's almost like if you come from a different background, you're you're the norm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so to be different and to speak a different language is what we're used to on tour. But you know, that being said, here in Orange County, the incident actually happened when we were at a at a local Walmart, not very far from from where we are, or from where we live. It was probably during the height of the pandemic my wife and I were walking into, uh, into the Walmart and an old, an older gentleman passed by and, and said, um, we're obviously for us to hear, you know, Oh, you Chinese, you new Chinese people, you that you brought the coronavirus, go back, go back to where you came from. And we are just very taken back by that. We turned around we said, excuse me, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and my wife and I are thinking, okay, we're, born and raised here in in the United States. And we're, we're, you know, just as American as you are, but you could tell that the blame and, you know, obviously had taken a place and in some individuals, we're not saying obviously it's a majority, but there are some that have taken their stance. And unfortunately we've, we've had, you know, quite a, quite a few, a lot of instances in which, you know, that Asian hate crimes have have taken place all around the U S in my heart. I still feel like that's the minority of, of how Americans feel obviously.
0: Yeah, when that happened were you you were obviously shocked were you scared as well what were your feelings?
1: I was not scared. I don't think there was any any reason to to be scared. You know, and I think you you come across um different situations where you know, maybe people don't agree with what you say or, or agree with what you do and and I've ex- certainly experienced that similarly in as far as my Christian faith goes. I kind of looked at it like, you know, you're not really understanding the situation you're not really understanding what constitutes an american you're not really understanding all of the things surrounding the coronavirus and in, in my mind it was just kind of like i just feel like you're 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 upset you're angry which i understand a lot of people were a lot of people are because nobody wants to live you know like we have been living in in the past few years with masks and mandates and so many different restrictions on on how we want to live life
0: yeah no. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel like a lot of Asian Americans during this pandemic, especially ones that maybe didn't experience as overt in your face racism, you know, like like you did in, in the Walmart, that a lot of them felt like, oh, gosh, you know, there is anti-Asian racism and and that exists. And it's kind of this like corporal waking up moment for Asian America. Uh, did you feel like you were part of that?
1: Well, I feel like, um, you know, in many instances in in my career, I have always felt like I've been given this platform, certainly as a tennis player, certainly as an Asian American, certainly as someone who is Asian, you know, and I feel like this platform is is something that is to be used in, in a good way. I've never thought of tennis as just being tennis. I've always positioned it as a way to touch lives, a way in which to, you know, certainly share my faith, a way in which to, you know, inspire young people, maybe young Asian Asian people or young Asian athletes in particular, because I, I've come across so many young Asian athletes that felt like they weren't in a position to be successful because they were Asian. And I'm kind of like, Okay. So you're wanting to be a tennis player. And, and oftentimes when I would get that question, I would often tell the young, the young boy to, well, stand up and you'd be standing up and I'd stand up and I'd be like, do you think you're that far off from me? I'm I'm not a six foot giant. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a huge guy. And, And a lot of them would have this mentality where they felt like they were maybe they didn't have the genetic makeup or whether they didn't have the size or the strength. And I would always tell them, I said, well, I feel like I'm living proof that you can be successful in sports and, and you can be one of the best in the world. But certainly having the mentality that you're at a disadvantage, you know, certainly harms you in a lot of ways. And, and we all know that when it comes to sports, attitude and mentality play a huge role.
0: Yeah. And a lot of us are are told that we're not you know, suitable for athletics or whatever. And so it, it is this kind of combination of external messages and then that becomes internalized. So, yeah, and and just like you said, I think a lot of Asian American, young Asian Americans seeing you, you know, on the world stage as a tennis star, including myself, I played tennis in high school. I was not great. <laughs> but um, but I, I think about, I went to a predominantly Asian American school and tennis was definitely one of the most popular sports for us. And I i know it's because of you. I mean, I didn't know it then, but I think all of us were like, we can do this. And, you know, I actually went to one of your games in high school. It's so funny because you were probably just focused on the game. But I remember there was some heckler in the audience. And I, I have a feeling that the person was saying something maybe anti-Asian. But, you know, I was in high school, so I didn't completely understand. I remember feeling so angry. And then those of us in the audience, and there were a lot of Asian Americans, we, like, were so mad. And we basically got the, I don't know, maybe security guard or somebody to kick him out. And then when I remember when he left, we were all cheering. And <laughs> and looking back, I'm sure he was saying something really offensive. And I actually went up after the game. I talked to your, like, mom and brother about it, I think. <laughs> and and because you traveled with them right on tour and I just, I, I don't know, it's, it was this this kind of impression and also feeling like, hey, you know, there's a lot of Asian-Americans here who are here to support Michael. And and it felt good that we were able to get that heckler out. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was in Orange County, I want to say, but it's been a long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, like I said, I, at the end of the day, I mean, they're really the minority. And, you know, I think that if you have the mentality like, you could be the nicest person in the world, and there's still somebody out there who's who's not going to like you. You could be the worst person in the world. There's someone out there that's going to be for you. And I think that it's it's important. I think to actually have this mentality, like you you cannot please everybody, no matter what you do, no matter who you are. And you know, at the end of the day, you're you're true to yourself. You're true to what's important and in, in who you know you are in your heart. How you were certainly, how you were raised plays a extremely important role in that. I don't let uh these kinds of things trouble me or bother me. I just try to keep focus on on the task at hand and in that particular case the you know the tennis match you know, and I put it aside sometimes not always easy to do, but I think when your focus is right, it's much easier to accomplish that.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, with Jeremy Lin, I feel like seeing a lot of the documentaries. There's another documentary also coming out, so it's so cool that there's going to be two sports documentaries about, you know, two two Asian American Christian athletes, right? So cool. But I remember seeing Lin Sanity, and actually, we screened it at Biola when I was there, and I think his cousin came out, um, who was a producer. And we talked about yeah, kind of heckling, right? It's it's I think it it's linked to the anti Asian hate during the coronavirus. This kind of like you don't belong, you're not American. That kind of foreign perpetual foreigner stereotype that that is imposed on us, and it's so hard, right? Those of us who are born and raised in the United States, and it's like the only country we know. Even though we are, you know, you said that your breakfast before the podcast began, you said your breakfast was manto, which is a a steamed bun, which is so we're very proud. Of being Asian as well, right? We still—I mean—the food is fantastic, <laughs> and um—and so, like, how how does it feel to be kind of an you know Asian American growing up and so much in the spotlight?
1: I mean, you know, it's interesting. I grew up in San Diego first for tennis, and and certainly in school there there weren't a whole lot of Asians. I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. Now it's very different, actually. My my daughter, my oldest daughter, plays a lot of tennis tournaments, and and there are a ton of you know, Asians playing, whether you're Chinese, you're Japanese, you're Vietnamese, you're Filipino, you know, you're Indian. I mean, there's a lot of Asians uh, playing now, which is, which is great to see. But All from, because
0: of you, Michael, all because of you.
1: <laughs> well, I think, you know, it, when you're, when you're young, though, when I was young, the one thing you want to do is you want to fit in. And, uh, you know, I was no different than that. I didn't want to be different. No, no kid when they're young wants to be different because different is always portrayed in a, in a, in a negative light. But I think you, as you, as you get older, as you start to understand more, certainly for me, when I had opportunities, for example, when I was a little bit older to, to go to Taiwan, for example, you know, to be there. And all of a sudden I'm like, wow, everybody's got like black hair, you know, (laughs) you know, and you start appreciating the culture. And and I'm thankful that my parents, you know, raised us with an appreciation of, uh, of the Chinese culture. Obviously we're surrounded by you know, the, the American culture and, and understanding the West, but they also helped us to understand uh, understand the East. And so we lived a, very much a, a combination of, of what I feel like is the best of, of both worlds. To be honest with you, I don't think I really, really started to grasp and really take to heart how special it was to, to be Asian, to be Chinese, really until until the French Open actually happened in 89 and then post the French Open. Because uh, from there, I started to understand that, you know, why, why God allowed me to, to win the French Open during a time when it was, it was so difficult to, for Chinese people in Tiananmen. And I felt like that was the reason. And I started to understand to a much greater degree, you know, why, why he made me Chinese and why I have the background that I, that I have. I certainly uh, embraced it in in uh, in a lot of different ways when I had opportunities to play in in the Asia Pacific rim especially places like Hong Kong and Singapore and and, uh, and China. From there I just had a a much greater appreciation for for being Chinese.
0: And how old were you then?
1: Uh 17 when I won the French Open. 16 when I first uh started to play some some tournaments that were that were in the Asia Asian region. And certainly the subsequent years after that, the crowd support that I would get in the United States from from the Asian American community, much less the, the American community. But but certainly when I was in Hong Kong, I mean, it was Hong Kong and China. I mean, the, the, the crowds and uh, it was wild. I mean, it, it was like, you know, something like a, like a rock star type of, of atmosphere. It wasn't like a, a sporting atmosphere. You know, in, in many ways, it was it was exciting. But in many ways, I realized, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a situation where, you know, I can impact a lot of lives and let's try and take advantage of it.
0: So you mentioned that you feel like God prepared you for that moment. Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, when I was young, actually, I went to church a lot. And the tough thing about church back then was that uh, there was no Sunday school. So I think my parents' intention was was good to, to go to church. I come from a very strong Christian background, particularly on my dad's side. So when I would go to church, it'd be tough to sit in the sanctuary and kind of, you know, listen to an adult sermon and really kind of absorb it. To me, it was just kind of like, okay, you know, when's, when's this going to finish so we can, you know, at least move on and, and start the rest of the day. So I didn't have a, a great impression of church uh, because of that. Uh, I think it's very different now because... Now you know so many churches have great Sunday schools. They really take the time to teach kids about the Bible in, in ways that they understand. So it's very different now. I actually really didn't come to to know the Lord actually until my rookie year when I was 16 years old. My rookie year out on tour, and I feel like the timing is very interesting. And you know, you know, we're mentioning about what what might have happened, or what, is there something that I that I watched or something that I read that that was disruptive in my life in a in a in a positive way. And, and thinking about it, this one instance was probably was probably it. It was it happened to be another Sunday. we were going to visit my my grandparents up in Thousand Oaks once again. You know, had to sit in sanctuary. I'm kind of like, all right, here we go again. You know, just kind of twiddle my thumbs and let's uh, get through it, and then go have lunch and stuff. And but this particular Sunday was very different. There was an elderly lady that was speaking. Her name was was Auntie Betty, is, is how they referred to her as. I believe she was uh, an adoptive, an adopted child, and she gave a sermon that was incredibly engaging, incredibly funny, uh, held my my attention the entire time. It's interesting. We we hear sermons all the time, and oftentimes we, you know, you ask a few days later what was. What was last Sunday's sermon, and you kind of have to think a little bit about it. But this this was one of those sermons that, even to this day, I still remember exactly what the sermon was about. That's how that's how much it, it touched my life. And this sermon really, I think, because it was engaging, because it was funny, I started to realize, wow, you know, the 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 Christian walk and reading the Bible can actually be enjoyable, you know, and <laughs> it didn't have to be like you know, don't do this, don't do that, that type of tone. And from there, I, I started to, to take down the Bible, the student Bible that my grandparents had given me, you know, many years back. And I started to look up subjects that were interesting and pertain that that pertained to my life at that time. So when you're 15, 16 years old, you're looking up friendship, you're looking up love, you're looking up different subjects like that. And, and I started to look what, see what the Bible had to say about all these different things. And I was like, wow, you know, what the Bible has to say about all these things is, is good. It's right. It's true. Okay. And let's, let's see what it has to say about other things. So it became a habit. Uh, it became a habit every single night to, to look up something new, some different subject. And in my mind, I was thinking to myself, all right, if I ever started reading about something that was just, I felt like was totally off. I'm just going to stop. But I never came across that. And I started reading read about Jesus' life. And then I started seeing things happening in my own life that i knew like okay maybe the first time was coincidence maybe the second time was coincidence and then after a while you're like it's not a coincidence anymore you know god's working in my life and god's showing me that he's real and there's no way all of these things are happening by chance and from there my my faith grew and i think i feel like the timing in which i came to know the lord was crucial because i came to know him the, the very first year of being out on tour which was 1988. I ended up winning the French Open in 1989. So by the time I had committed my life to Christ the summer of 88, I ended up getting baptized in October that same year. And it became very evident to me that my tennis career was not going to be about how much money I could make or how many titles I could uh, accumulate or win. But I realized that the talent in which I was given for tennis was to be used to touch people's lives. Of course I'm out there trying to win tournaments, of course I'm out there trying to give my very very best, but I realized all of those things and I realized the position in which I was in. So when the 89 French came around and I had won the 89 French and all of a sudden I was dealing with fame, I was dealing with a lot more endorsements which was relate, you know, which translated into more income coming in. I wasn't in that position where I was like, you know what, my success is because of me, because I already had come to the conclusion the year before that the success that I'm given is because of him and it's for a greater purpose. So in that instance, it just, it just solidified my purpose out there on tour, uh, my purpose in life and understanding that basically each and every one of us have been given a talent or multiple talents. Uh, in order to make an impact on this world. And for me, it was tennis. Hmm.
0: And you mentioned Tiananmen. How does Tiananmen factor into all of this?
1: Well, Tiananmen actually was going on at the same time that the French Open was happening. The actual crackdown actually happened the day before the day before a match with, with Lendl, actually. So if I was not watching the events unfold on TV, I was out there playing my matches and, and getting ready practicing and stuff like that. It was basically one of two things. You know, the situation in Tiananmen was just um, touching me in, in, in so many different ways. And, and it, made, it made fighting through some of those last matches, especially the last four matches, easy in some ways. Because I'm thinking to myself, you know, there are students out there in Beijing uh, fighting for democracy, uh, fighting for their lives, fighting for freedom. For me to be out there fighting for a, a tennis match, you know, regardless of whether I'm feeling good or dealing with cramps, is easy. You know, there's there's no comparison there. But because I'm I'm coming from a Chinese background, and then my mom obviously, you know, having spent time in China, you have that. You feel for the people there, you know, as did every Chinese person around the world. Because it was such a, a sad time to, to see that happening to, to Chinese people, much less anybody, you know, in society.
0: I was, um, I think, I was young and and not really understanding what was going on. But when I went to grad school. No, was it grad school? No, it was undergrad. And at UCLA, my my Chinese TA was actually the intellectual leader of the whole Tiananmen um, student movement. <laughs> and she didn't even tell us. She didn't tell us anything. I was like going to her every office hour because I really sucked at Chinese and I really needed her help. And then I saw a documentary later on in grad school and I realized that she was so humble. She never even revealed You know, during she didn't say like, hey, you all, by the way, I am this person. She just dutifully taught me pinyin, which is like probably so basic compared to, you know, whatever she was getting, I think, a Ph.D. in Chinese literature. And it made me actually just knowing someone uh, look into it later, you know, and just realize, yeah, what a what a what a movement and how she um, there was a lot of guilt. I think a lot of the students You know, they actually got out, most of them, but the violence and the killings didn't happen to the student leaders. They all all managed to escape. So there was a lot of kind of survivor's guilt, which was very interesting. It's a very complex story, you know?
1: It was interesting, too, because I think what a lot of people actually don't realize is what happened in Tiananmen really opened the door for the unification of Germany.
0: That's when. yeah, I didn't know that.
1: Down later that year. It affected obviously a lot of uh, a lot of Chinese lives, but the whole world was watching, and there's no doubt that um, it, it affected a lot of the uh, a lot of the countries in Europe.
0: Yeah, the fight for democracy. I mean, it makes me think about now, especially now that we have social media. You know, when the Arab Spring happened, and just people knowing about the movements that are happening globally and and being inspired, right, to do the same. I mean, even the, the kind of globalization of Black Lives Matter and all sorts of civil rights activism being inspiring to other parts of the world. It's um, it's good. It's good, but hard also. And now, deeper thoughts with Nancy Wong-Yoon. Today's reading comes from Beyond Colorblind, Redeeming Our Ethnic Journey by Sarah Shin. Chapter 3, The Cracks in Our Ethnicity. Lament. Mourning and grief is scary for many of us. And yet, that is the proper response to hearing about sin and the pain that sin causes ourselves and others. Cultural idolatry, ethnic division, and racial brokenness have caused the generational pain that we see today. Lament is the invitation to come before God and say, this should not be. We were made for life, not death. And all signs of sin and death should make us say, no, this is not the image of God. It should not be that our culture causes harm to women and children because of its idolatries. It should not be that cultural idolatries cause us to choose our success and gain at the expense of others. It should not be that racism, ethnic division, genocide, and slavery entered the world. It should not be that we are gripped by shame, fear, Hatred, depression, despair, and division.
1: That was Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong-Yoon. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can get 30% off and free U.S. shipping on any book when you use the promo code DISRUPT at ivypress.com. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T. And join us next time for more of Nancy's Deeper Thoughts.
0: So then... Tell me about. Uh, tell me a little bit about that sermon. Actually, I want to know what was it in the sermon that got you. Kind of, what was the sermon about?
1: Uh, the sermon was about how God has a purpose for everything. Auntie Betty was telling the story about how a family was traveling. They were trying to get from one uh, one destination to to another one, and they were supposed to catch a, a ferry. And for one reason or another, they were they were running a little bit late. And by the time they had gotten to the place where the, where the ferry was supposed to, was supposed to leave, they, the ferry had just left. Like literally, they were just like a few minutes late. So it had already taken off, and, and they were griping and they were groaning, oh, you know, now we got to wait another four or five hours for the next ferry. You know, God, why did you let us miss this ferry? So they were complaining and stuff. So they had to, you know, basically wait around for the next one. And uh, ended up getting on the ferry, you know, figuring out, you know, what they were going to do because they missed this one. They were five hours late now and they had gotten to their destination. And when they had gotten to their destination, there was a lot of commotion. Obviously got off the ferry, the, the ferry boat and, and were inquiring as to what was going on. They started to realize that um, that there was a lot of people on the other side with all the commotion going on because they realized that the ferry that traveled before them didn't make it. <gasps> And they ended up like, being pirated or something had happened to it where it, it never came in. And so after that, they realized that, you know, in the whole instance of, of circumstance, when they were, you know, complaining about why they had missed it, somehow God protected them from, from being on that ferry that didn't make it uh, to the destination in the first place. And, you know, it made me think a little, a lot about, you know, God ha- having plans for, for each and every one of us in our lives. And I think when you're, when you're the age in which I was at, when you're 15, 15 years old, you, you think about what, what do I want to do in my life? What What is life really about? And that was the stage in which I was at, at that particular time. And lo and behold, I'm, I'm, I'm now embarking on, on my tennis career and it became very evident uh, very quickly. Like I said, you know, what, what my talent was and what I was supposed to, uh, to use it for. And that sermon, uh, you know, touched me immensely. I don't know how how many, however, however many years, but it's, it's a sermon that I still remember uh, very well.
0: Wow, that's a, that's definitely an impactful sermon. One of those, oh my gosh, that could be me. <laughs> and, and how, and kind of uh, a surprising supernatural kind of sermon, which I think, yeah, young people are really definitely drawn to because we, the life is so unknowable, right? When you're that young and especially for you going to do something that is that's never been done before right and and embarking on that and so how has your faith would you say as and also as you know an Asian American tennis player how has your faith allowed you to be a disruptive force for good you, would you say in the tennis world
1: well i think one of the things that my faith has given me in tennis is it's given me a, a great deal of a great deal of perspective and a great deal of calm. I think when it comes to sports, I think it's very easy to make sports into something way bigger than than what it should be. I think that's pretty evident in <laughs> when parents sometimes watch their kids play, and they're maybe playing some little league competition or maybe some soccer competition. And while it's going on, it's just like uh, it's very intense, and 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 you feel like this tournament or this match or this championship is like is like the end of the world, but in actuality, a a lot of times it's just a a stepping stone along the way, you know, and I just feel like my faith, no matter where I was in the world, no matter what circumstance I was, I was in uh, on the tennis court, whether I was winning, whether I was losing, whether it was a very, very close match, the perspective of knowing that this doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change how I'm loved was a great comfort for me. And, and, and unfortunately, I don't think that that's always the case. I feel like sometimes with kids, it's kind of like if you win, it's great, right? Everybody's happy. Everybody's, you know, patting you on the back, you know, good job. And, and, uh, let's go celebrate. But if you lose, it's kind of like, this is what you did wrong. This is why you didn't, why we didn't win, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, we're not going to go do something fun. We're, we're going to go back and we're going to go put more hard work in because you did so poorly. So I think that for me, to have the right perspective allows you to think uh, very clearly, allows you to be focused. And to be honest with you, it allowed it allowed me the freedom to be able to go out there and, and give my best, knowing that no matter what happened, if I'm out there giving my my very best and I know I've worked my hardest, that's all I can ask of myself. That's all people can ask of me. That's all the Lord desires of me. And it was very easy from then on out just to leave the winning and losing into God's hands.
0: That sounds really lovely. Actually, makes it less because I think when I think about that time of tennis with McEnroe, like people throwing tennis rackets and screaming and cursing, I feel like that was that was probably what people, a lot of people, tuned in to watch to the, the the little drama, uh, the, the tantrums, essentially, right? That players would throw, and to feel like, yeah, that well, you don't need to do that because ultimately god is in control and and that this this is a game this is a career uh, like many other careers and you just kind of continue treading along i mean but the pressure you must have felt some pressure though as as you know kind of a history maker as such a young player um people must have been saying things like oh my gosh you're the first this and that and i mean how did you deal with all that pressure
1: I mean, there's no question that the, the pressure was the greatest by far uh, after, after the 89 French, because that's when people started to really know who I, who I was. I got asked to to do a lot more interviews. I had a lot more sponsors and more people were coming out to watch me signing a lot more autographs, taking a lot more pictures. So that was an incredible, incredibly tough year after that. And and it's something that. One of the best ways to, to to learn how to deal with it, how to deal with it, is to just be able to go through it. And it's interesting because so few people have actually gone through it. It's tough to have somebody explain to you how to handle it. I feel like I could I could do that now if somebody was in a similar situation. But I think it's dif- it's difficult for a parent or a coach, maybe even an agent, to explain to the player, "Hey, this is how you deal with it," because nobody actually knows what that player's dealing with on the inside because very few people have been in that situation. So it was a great time of, uh, of maturity. It was a great, do- it was a great time to understand that tennis was not just about hitting a good forehand and backhand and winning your matches, but to be one of the best tennis players in the world, not only do you have to play incredible tennis, but you have to be able to balance all of the expectations All of the pressures, your time as far as, uh, you know, giving interviews, your time as far as, you know, doing commercials or, or, you know, satisfying sponsors, all of those things now are part of the picture and you have to be able to balance all of those things in order to to still be able to go out there and play and perform your best on the tennis court. And it's not, uh, it's not easy, but I still think at the end of the day, it comes back to knowing that, hey, as long as I go out there and give my 100 percent. That's all I can ask. And that's all people can ask of me. And if I win, great. If I lose, hey, I should be able to walk off the court with my head held high because I can only give 100%. I can't give any more.
0: And so this new documentary... You're going to be coming back into the spotlight (laughs) or perhaps you've never left in my in hearts of those of us who who grew up in the 80s and 90s and and love tennis. But now ESPN, you know, this new documentary, you're going to be um, introduced to perhaps generations that too young to to know about your amazing achievements. So how was how was that experience?
1: The experience was great. I feel like this is a a unique documentary. I don't think it's a typical ESPN 30 for 30. I feel like it's a lot of it is you know certainly talking about about the French Open but it's a lot of it's talking about the journey in which many Asian Americans have taken the journey that my parents have taken coming over from from China coming over from Taiwan this is a journey that uh, I don't think a whole lot of people have told and this is obviously a little bit unique because because of what happened to me through tennis, through the sport of tennis. It's something that uh, I've enjoyed You know, being a part of that. I've, I've really enjoyed my listening to my mom and watching her do the interviews because uh, I'm super close to my mom. And I feel like now being a, a father myself, I understand to a greater degree what kind of sacrifices my parents had to make for me. And from from my brother, and probably even greater sacrifices because they weren't born and raised here. We were, so certainly we understand the culture a little bit better than than they did when they were young. They had a learning curve to uh, to go about. So it's something that um, you know I'm very very appreciative, and I feel like my parents just sacrificed an incredible amount to give their children the best, as many Asian American parents have done, parents and grandparents have done.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's an exciting documentary. Also, total uh disclosure, I'm also in the documentary um as as a sociologist and a fan uh, growing up in in that time as well. And also having, you know, having parents who are immigrants and I myself am an immigrant. I came when I was about five, but yeah, so growing up and and, and looking for Asian American, you know, representation. And Michael, you were one of the first. So thank you so much for, for doing that, for being a model and also sharing your faith and sharing how you've incorporated your faith and relied on your faith to, to get you through such a kind of pressure cooker and so much fame in, at such a young age. So thank you, Michael.
1: Absolutely.